The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Wednesday, April 18th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Mike Pompeo, not just the pro-torture former CIA head. Sorry, not pro-torture, just much, much more pro-patriot. In the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing, he said this, instead of responding, silence has made these Islamic leaders across America potentially complicit in these acts, and more importantly still in those that may well follow. On the other hand, he did graduate first in his class at West Point, and is quite sane on the threat that Russia poses. However, all this may not be enough for a single Democrat to back him as Secretary of State. And Republican Rand Paul voted against him in committee. His confirmation could get dicey. And that is why we got to find out that the dude met with Kim Jong-un. So now he's a diplomat. He's a man who can bridge chasms, who could break bread with a madman. I mean, who else would have the foresight and resolve to meet with Kim Jong-un? Oh yeah, Dennis Rodman. He's the other guy I could think of. And when your greatest asset can be countered with, well, so did Dennis Rodman provided you're not talking about rebounds per game, maybe that's not the most impressive spot on your resume. As soon as we heard about the Pompeo trip, Ned Price, a former Obama administration Intel official, took to Twitter and noted, here's a question. Did the administration leak a top secret CIA mission on the same day several senators came out against Pompeo as Secretary of State to make him seem more diplomatic? Sure feels like it. In fact, today Politico reports White House revealed North Korea trip to boost Pompeo's image. The CIA director is facing a narrow Senate confirmation vote to be Trump's next top diplomat. And supporters, supporters, say the high stakes trip proves he can handle the job. That proves he can handle it because he once met with Kim Jong-un. And the results of that meeting uh, have not been disclosed, but are known only to him. And the proof that he can handle it, once again, this sentence can also be uttered, well, so did Dennis Rodman. Other, Other Ned Price points. I want to quote this guy a lot. I think he deserves it. The CIA, since 1980, has had a legal requirement to keep Congress fully and currently informed of its activities. But the CIA director, Pompeo, doesn't appear to have briefed Congress to include the Intelligence Oversight Committee on his travel. Senators should be demanding answers. And Price also notes that, yeah, this was in fact a leak of top secret intel for political purposes. So this is supposed to be the evidence that helps Mike Pompeo. We got a chock-a-block show today. I spiel about the passing of a first lady and first mom, and two interviews today. Tony Gilroy and Brad Anderson to talk about their new film, Beirut. But first, here's Aaron Stein, arms control wonk, to talk about the recent strikes on Syria. (laughs) 
Red lines, sarin gas, or maybe just chlorine, tomahawk missiles, and the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake you've ever seen. Well, except for the chocolate cake, we've been through this before, but I have to ask what to think of it now. Joining me is Aaron Stein. He's one of the co-hosts of the Arms Control Wonk podcast, the gold standard for arms control podcasts. He's also a senior resident fellow at the uh, Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East at the Atlantic Council. It's a new book out on Turkey. Hello, Aaron. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I could see why this strike might change the calculation on the uh, part of the Syrian regime about whether you use chemical weapons. But why do you think the use of chemical weapons is more useful to Assad than a headache for Assad? I mean, he's used these weapons, you know, in the big attacks in August 2013 and then in the April 2017 and then 2018 in what would be a textbook fashion, you know, to use that term. It's to clear areas, sarin in particular, or nerve agent, you know, disperses quite quickly so troops can move in relatively quickly after the agent is used. And they're really weapons of terror. Studies have shown from interviews with Iranians who have been subjected to all sorts of chemical weapons attacks from the Iraqis in the 1980s is that levels of PTSD are far higher than the equivalent use of conventional weapons. And so it ultimately sends a real signal to the opposition in these areas that they will be cleared out. It's best for you to capitulate and give up. Otherwise, you'll just continue to be hit. Now, whether or not this causes more headaches for Bashar al-Assad, I, I would argue it probably changed the mind of the U.S. president who in multiple interviews before he was elected, Donald Trump said that Assad wasn't really his problem. It was Islamic State. The first set of strikes months ago was against an airstrip and it seems like no people died. I don't even know if anything except asphalt was destroyed in that set of strikes. You could tell me if it was. This set of strikes seems to at least been a targeting of the actual facilities that actually makes sarin gas. But you tell me what you know about them. Yeah. I mean, so the first one was basically just a little bit over a year ago and that it targeted the airbase from which regime aircraft took off and bombed an opposition-held city with sarin gas. And so far, it was clearly a punitive retaliatory strike on the airbase from which this attack emanated and presumably where these weapons were stored. It did take out some aircraft, but one of the complicating factors of this is that it was determined that Russians were co-located and to try and keep everything from escalating into places the U.S. doesn't want it to go, they forewarned the Russians, which is quite prudent. This time around, the number of missiles were larger and the U.S., the French and the British hit three facilities, all of which are relatively known in the arms control wonk world for being tied to the Syrian regime's chemical weapon production facilities capabilities. How long would it take them to ramp up their facilities and make more chemical weapons? This is where I think the Department of Defense got a little over its ski ski tips in the briefing it gave, I guess, last Saturday, which is this crippled, quote-unquote, the chemical weapons. I mean, certainly it set them back. Certainly it sends a message that we will send a Tomahawk or an air launch cruise missile into things when you cross You do things that the United States doesn't like, but by its very nature, chemical weapons programs are relatively easy to set up. It's it's more or less dual-use equipment that could support just a regular civilian chemical program. So there's like a switch that one side says sarin and the other says, I don't know, hydrogen peroxide or something? A lot of these chemical precursors that you mix together that ultimately result in sarin have other uses. 
Yeah. And they're only really nasty when they get put together in, in a delivery vehicle and then are, are shot at things, you know. And that's one of the things with chlorine as well, is that chlorine is used all over the place. You know, water purification, the list goes on and on and on. And so it's hard to make determinative judgments about when these things become nasty. Just in terms of deadliness, would a chemical weapons attack like we saw in Guta or uh, Khan Shaikun, would that be more deadly than a daisy cutter or even one of these uh, Moab bombs? I mean, good question. I mean, the, the, the size of, of, of the Moab or the daisy cutter are, are, are quite large, whereas the lethality of chemical weapons depends upon the concentration, which way the wind's blowing, all these types of things. I would say that they're both potent weapons, but, you know, chemical weapons, as I said earlier, tend to have much larger psychological effects on survivors. And so they're weapons of terror, and they've been cast into this category along with biological and nuclear of weapons of mass destruction that the U.S. and its allies don't want to be used around the world and therefore will enact consequences. Yes, but why? What's the logical case that there is this line around these kinds of weapons and yet the bombing of civilians in Yemen could go unfettered or really deadlier weapons in terms of just the size of the ordinance can not be sanctioned by international law? They were used as weapons of, of mass destruction, particularly in the battlefields of World War One, and there is this beginning with the Hague Code of Conduct and then ultimately in the Chemical Weapons Convention, a big red line drawn around their use because the relative lethality of their use with the, I guess, smaller number of weapons you know, to get a larger number of, of kills, particularly in the Syria case, more and more people are asking about the divergence between why strike over chemical weapons. 500 people were killed last week in artillery shelling in X place in Syria, so why are you making a distinction? And I think one of the consequences of this is exactly what your question is getting at, which is why do we draw a difference in the first place around chemical weapons? And so that norm around their use, that prohibitive norm, is eroding. And so you're going to come out of this war on the other end with a weakened norm against the use of chemical weapons and an international community led by the United States that doesn't really have a good answer to the questions you're asking and how to prevent their future use. That needs to be dealt with within the international context, not just through cruise missile strikes, but through follow-ups in diplomacy, working really hard to pressure the Russians to get him in line. Aaron Stein is senior resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center. I hear him all the time on the Arms Control Wonk podcast. Listen, if you're going to listen to one podcast about arms control, I prefer that one over the Refinery29 version. Thank you, Aaron. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Beirut is the story of a diplomat, a former diplomat, called in to do one last job. Sort of, really. It's a very specific job to him. John Hamm plays the role, and there is a kidnapping. He has connections to the kidnappers. He has connections to the kidnapped party. This is a movie that has been decades in the making. It takes place in 1982. It is called Beirut. It is directed by Brad Anderson, who is here. It is written by Tony Gilroy, who is here. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thank you. So, Tony, you wrote this how long ago? 1991. Yeah. And so then it was a period piece from a decade ago. 
I was writing, yeah, I was writing 1991. I was writing about 1982. Yeah. Odd Lens. So I suppose the film viewer of 91 had to at least be oriented in a different way than the film viewer of uh, 2018? Oh, I don't know about that. I think the uh, I think the intentions of the film and where it would sit in the marketplace were a lot different. It was meant to be a you know a real Sidney Pollack, yeah. Peter Weir, Wolfgang Peterson, rather larger, big sort of studio movie at the time. Israel doesn't come off great in this film. Uh, I don't think the United States does. Certainly, the PLO doesn't. The fictionalized militia. Well, they're a militia. How how great are they going to come off? But the thing is, I'm sure that's part of what drew you to the story, the complexity and that there are no clear heroes in something like Beirut or the movie that you set in Beirut. Well, I really consciously picked the moment in time. I spent a year on this movie, most of it research, and really searched for the most pregnant, electric, awful moment in history to put this. And the winter of 82 looked really ugly and everybody's behavior is really ugly and you know the only hero in this movie really is is john ham what i'm talking about the card game i was told to act natural well bashir your new friend the host he's the plo minister of commerce and a lot of the issues that prevented the film from being made in 91 because it was perceived as being a little bit radioactive and a little bit too political all those questions had been, all those verdicts were in. There's yeah. no debate about uh, about any of the things I'm saying. I think what's even crazier is that Lebanon's half the size of New Jersey. Beirut is, I think, 120 miles from Homs. It's 115 miles from Damascus. Right. And I think it's 80 miles from Haifa. This is a small piece of territory. Yeah. This stuff is happening all over again. It's another inflection point right now. Same players. It's a different generation of Hariri, right? It's these world powers. It's these America and the Middle East, but it's these Sunni and Shiite powers where the Lebanese are the fulcrum still. They're the victims, yeah. Well, they're the victims, but they're also, to survive, they're having to play all sides. It's the only country that I know of where it's constitutionally mandated that this sect gets the premiership, this sect gets the presidency, and that's what makes it fascinating. There's an interesting thing in in the movie uh, that relates to how it continues to be topical, even though the story was set in the 80s, is there's some aerial shots we did uh, that are in the movie that show Beirut from the from above looking devastated, in a devastated city. Obviously, we couldn't get real aerial stock footage from that time frame. We didn't have the budget to do a CGI devastated city. So we licensed drone footage of home Syria and Aleppo. And so those, those cities that you see that are flattened in the movie are actually from taken five years ago in the course of, during the course of the Syrian civil war. So it's like ironic that, you know, one civil war sort of percolates and slides east into another, and yet they're the same in a way. Yeah, you know? I think it's the opposite of ironic. I mean, that's how it, oh, happens. Yeah. That's how it no, happens. It's awful. Yeah. Well, in 82, where this movie takes place, if you went back and you said to anybody who was living there, Oh, man, you're living in a simpler time? Yeah. They would slit your throat legitimately. Yeah. they go, my God, we just lived through the worst thing. But compared to what's going to follow when this movie's over, like a month after this movie's over, Israel is going to find an excuse to invade, and Hezbollah is going to be created, and Imad Mugnia is going to learn how to do car bom- uh, suicide bombing, and, and uh, religious fundamentalism is going to replace political interests. The proxy war is going to become even that much greater. It's just everything descends from, from this winter. 
Although for Beirut itself, it went through a tougher time after that, and there's been a renaissance of sorts in the city itself. Well, that's one of the reasons. I mean, we couldn't shoot there because the city's just been too too built up. It's had too much of a a renaissance, yeah. I would understand, Brad, if I were you, wanting to work with uh, this man sitting to my left, but is it like, I I know in theater, sometimes the playwright's there and telling you how to do things, and the director has to defer to the playwright, Mm. and in movies, it's exactly the opposite usually. So what was the relationship between director and movie writer, yeah. He just gave us our blessing. I think for him, I mean, I won't speak for you, but it feels like for you, there was just this thrill of seeing this thing come to life after 19 odd years. Like, okay, go for it, you know? And I couldn't have made did. the movie for the money he made it for. I just wouldn't have been able to do it. I'm, he, he's, he's much tougher and, and less spoiled than I am. So, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty economical and efficient, but I could not have done the movie in Ramadan uh, during right. Ramadan in Tangier at that number for those amount of days. Never happened for me. How did Ramadan affect the shoot? Oh, God. I mean, it didn't affect us non-Muslims, but, you know, most of our crew were practicing the fast and couldn't eat or drink or smoke from sunrise to sunset. The moment the sunset— The smoking, smoking, I I guess, doesn't impact you that much. No, I would say that's the worst. Really? Oh, my God. For people that are in smokers. It wasn't just Ramadan. It was in August, and it was—so it was a long Ramadan, Mm -hmm. and it was uh, a hot one, and a lot of our crew were, you know, really suffering. The moment the sun went down, they would have these amazing feasts with— everything laid out and we would give them the luxury of like eating and drinking finally. Yeah. And it was kind of nice because it kind of was a way that for the, everyone to come together at that point. The only problem is most of the time when you make a movie, it's like right around when the sun's going down, you want to get your best shots. Yes. So the we were golden like, hour, always, right? Yeah, we we're always like right conflicting with like, do we oh, feed God, the crew really? and give them water? Or do oh, we no, get the I best the looking shot? shot? Oh, oh my God. So was your rap party Eid al-Fatir? well it was just before that it was just after that a lot of dates yeah when you name a movie after a place are the stakes higher because most of the movies named after a place are well maybe just the ones i remember but you know chinatown and philadelphia and munich and paris texas and fargo it Mm. seems to be a statement yeah yeah it's to, to speak New of York, Morocco. New York. Yeah, yeah, twice. So it seems to be that it's a it's a bigger swing. I think it's been a point of irritation for some of the. I think that's I think that's finally people in Lebanon are are, are wondering if we're branding their branding their city. I think yeah. that's the only liability of it. It's a good title for us. It had we had a bunch of terrible titles for twenty years that I really I was really unhappy with the titles. I like this title. I know that some people are upset that we're that in some way we're branding the city as a. As the war torn, yeah, the war torn country that they're trying to escape. The, but it's uh, like, have you been off. there? And I mean, do you right. know what it was well, like in '82? That's well, accurate. But I think that's watch some Circle of, the... of Deceit. I mean, we I don't know if the, that movie is just it was shot shot in '82 by Volker Slondorf. There's nothing in our film that comes close to the d- destruction of what's on that camera. Yeah, I, mean, it's no, really I think the title is I think the title is appropriate and yeah. it, it makes sense from yeah. my perspective because yeah. it's like. Mason Scott is the character that John plays and Beirut are the same in a way. Like one's a broken man, one's a broken city. They come together. He has to sort of navigate himself, his way through that in order to kind of redeem himself. To me, like the, the title bespeaks a feeling and an emotion, whether if you're familiar with any sort of any kind of familiarity with that neck of the woods, that like this was a place that had such, continues to have such great beauty and elegance and history and at the promise. same time yeah. has been like has of, yeah. has gone through this this sort of struggle sixty five hundred dollars in a first class ticket i wouldn't go back to beirut if it was the last place on earth flight leaves logan at eight forty five tonight it's it's not hard to understand why people would have a hair trigger in lebanon you know and the you know and in talking to people in the, about the movie about this issue you're sort of saying, God, look, this movie is about four different 
outside groups coming in and using your using your home as a yeah. as a as a battleground. Uh, I'm sympathetic. But anyway, I, I like the title. I wouldn't change it. You um, have any? I dig it. You have anything else in a drawer from decades ago? Oh, this is going to start a whole thing for me. Uh-huh. I have <laughs> I have dozens of scripts that this is now. I'm sure they're going to be a, they're going to be lining up to come and uh, and and pick through the inventory. I do. Every writer does. Most of your best stuff never gets made. I mean, yeah. every screenwriter would say that. Most of your best stuff never gets made. Well, you, yeah, you didn't you didn't have like a computer copy of the script. You had no. To, had like, to go back and have it yeah. read put in. This is the craziest question. But did the spacing on the pages change in the last twenty five years? <laughs> <laughs> no, script the formatting, is, same? Script formatting okay. is identical. Yep. All right. Brad Anderson is the director of Beirut, and Tony Gilroy wrote it a long time ago, but it's out now. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel. Barbara Bush was one of two women in American history, to be the mother of one president and the wife of another, Abigail Adams. She was the other woman. Interestingly, the four presidents related to those two women, only one re-election one time, collectively. George W. Bush was the man, and he was the worst of the four. There were nine incumbent presidents in the United States history who were defeated at the polls. Eight, if you take into account that Grover Cleveland won, but not consecutively. So nine incumbents who lost meaning a third of the presidents who lost re-election were the son or husband of those two women. That is trivia, and Barbara Bush led a decidedly non-trivial life. She was a strong figure in an American dynasty, and it is right to remember her and to honor her. But there is something, and maybe this is just me, but something that chafes at the groupthink, the unwillingness to veer from the elegies, the aggressive wall of nothing but praise. It's not that Barbara Bush was secretly a monster, but she was quite a bit more flawed than the beatific coverage would have you believe. Look, I'm not saying that the sins of the Iraq war accrue to her. Her husband was one of America's great public servants. He was not a great president, but his service to our country was laudable, and therefore her service to our country was totally laudable. But you would be forgiven today if you thought Barbara Bush was anything less than a living saint. And where do saints go? Here we are on a day where we're thinking about the way George Herbert Walker Bush and Barbara Bush uh, presided over the country. And on that morning, the 45th president tweets about this? I think Barbara Bush is drinking bourbon in heaven right now. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's a one-off line from Morning Joe, a chat show, but there were lots of similar sentiments, and it just epitomizes the one allowable tone endorsed by broadcast news in times like this. Let me read to you from a 1992 profile by Marjorie Williams in Vanity Fair. First, one paragraph. Let's call this the zeitgeist paragraph. I'm going to remind you where we all were in 1992. It is an extra stroke of luck for the president, that was George Bush at the time, that the Democrats' answer to Barbara Bush is Hillary Clinton. Quote, I'll take a matchup between George and Barbara Bush and Bill and Hillary Clinton all day, says a senior Bush advisor. People like Barbara Bush and people don't like Hillary Clinton. Even if Ross Perot, not Bill Clinton, proves to be the greater threat to Bush's re-election, Margot Perot... I had no idea. Seems unlikely to divert much attention from the symbolic face-off between her more famous counterparts. Republican strategists will be working overtime to remind us that the Arkansas governor's controversial wife is the perfect foil for the first lady's image 
as the embodiment of all cardinal virtues. All right, that's where we were. And here's something that Marjorie Williams notes about Barbara Bush. She establishes all of Barbara Bush's credentials, doing uh, work with uh, an AIDS hospice and uh, being the public face of uh, someone who's self-deprecating. But then she writes this. The same reporters who spin misty reports of Barbara Bush toiling in soup kitchens discuss a different reality among themselves. The flinty stare she fixes on the source of a question she doesn't like. The humorous dig the chili put-down. For behind her rampart of pearls, the nation's most self-effacing celebrity is in fact a combative politician. Always there, not far below the surface, is the Barbara Bush who briefly emerged in 1984 to denounce Geraldine Ferraro as, quote, that $4 million, I can't say it, but it rhymes with rich, end quote. This Barbara Bush has a brilliant grasp of image and has always understood a chief source of her appeal that she is, as folks in Washington never tire of pointing out, not Nancy. So think about those paragraphs I read. Here are the following arguments in favor of Barbara Bush. She's not Geraldine Ferrara. She's not Hillary Clinton. She's not Nancy Reagan. Some of those might be the construct of the writer, but I don't think the appeal of Barbara Bush was tied into collectively raising up women. It was a different time. She came from a different background. Perhaps there wasn't a widespread sense of solidarity or sisterhood. And her business was politics. It's winner take all in America. But Barbara Bush was tough, fierce, steely. Here were the harshest two sentences in a Washington Post obit that ran today. The White House staff adopted a nickname bestowed on her by her children, the Silver Fox, and took care not to cross her. She was known to stare down aides she thought were not performing up to task for her husband. Nothing seems so bad about that, but we go back to Marjorie Williams. Privately, she is a caustic and judgmental woman who has labored to keep her sarcasm in check with incomplete success. And once she notes a soft spot, says a longtime associate, she hangs on forever. She never, ever, ever lets go. She can just get under your skin and needle you. I mean, elaborates a former aide, she's a good person. She talks about AIDS and stuff, but she's not this nice person. My observation right here is not that we're unable to speak honestly of the dead. It's not that. It's just that the peons on TV and the glowing obits do fall under the rubric of journalism, don't they? Sure, if I went on a morning show and took to a newspaper today and said a version of what I'm saying here, that the woman could not be nice, that the woman was cruel at times, I would be pilloried. Why are you saying this today? The family is grieving. How dare you? How dare I? I mean, we do this thing to inform, not to console, not to spin comforting tales. So here's my obit. Barbara Bush was a significant figure in the politics of the last 30 years. She was a complex lady, loyal, driven, demanding of and deserving of respect. She was sometimes curt and sometimes even cruel. She was, like all of us, a person in full and an important American. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. Favorite movie name for a place? Paris, Texas. Least favorite place? Paris, Texas. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, is indifferent about Manchester by the sea. 
She saw it in Manchester. She gives it a C. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. His favorite movie about a place, Nebraska. His least favorite, Atlantic City. His favorite song on Springsteen's Nebraska is Atlantic City. And his least favorite is Nebraska. The gist. Our favorite movie about a place is Legends of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul, which in a way is a place inside all of us. Oomperu Deperu Duperu, and thanks for listening.